Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta, and before I introduce today's guests, a couple of quick housekeeping items. I want to thank everybody for their praise over the holiday break. I think a lot of people caught up with the podcast then, judging by my emails and notes via Twitter. I want to thank everybody for all your kind words. You can go the extra mile for us and do a favor for me and go on Apple Podcasts and rank the podcast. That would really be helpful. And of course, also subscribe to it. And uh, you can give feedback to us directly through editors at sundaylongread.com. Use that email address. We appreciate it. If there's some future guests you'd like to hear, um, drop us a note there. Today, I am thrilled to welcome one of my oldest friends, one of my closest friends, S.L. Price. He is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated since 1994. Scott is widely considered one of America's best sports writers. His articles have been anthologized in the Best American Sports Writing Series nine times, which is remarkable. And I think it's, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're three shy of the record by Gary Smith. Isn't that right? I, I I think that might be right. I think Gary was in uh, at least at least twelve, something like at, that. At yeah. least twelve, maybe even more. So you're you're uh, very close to to one of the legends in our in our business. Prior to working at SI, Scott worked at the Miami Herald, where he and I met way back in 1991. And prior to that, he was at the Sacramento Bee. His work has appeared in numerous other publications, including Vanity Fair. Scott is the author of four books. His most recent book is Playing Through the Whistle, Steel, Football, and an American Town, which is a superb biography of Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, now available in paperback. The New York Times said of Scott's work, quote, the seasoned reporter is a master of the new journalism developed by Hunter Thompson, Gay Talese, and Price's personal paragon, Pete Hamill. Whenever he writes about sports or about the craft of writing, he hits it over the fence, which is absolutely true. So, Scott, thank you so much for making the time for the SLR pod and welcome. Uh, it's great to be here. Absolutely an honor. Thank you. Now, S.L. Price, uh, before I even met you, I noticed the byline. Before I knew how cool you are in person, I thought, man, this is one of the coolest bylines ever. Why S.L.? Why not Why not Scott Price? Or the most pretentious. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's funny because when, uh, when I got to um, the Sacramento Bee, this legendary columnist for the paper, Bill Conlon, not the Philadelphia Bill Conlon, but the West Coast Bill Conlon, uh, uh, insisted on calling me Salt Lake because of because of the byline. I mean, I, when it got right down to it, I I, I um, growing up didn't like my name, and um, uh, you know you didn't when, like you didn't, you didn't like Scott. I, I don't or? like the name Scott. Yeah, and okay. so and so I don't know why. And and essentially, um, I figured when I started writing for you know newspapers and in in, uh, in college. Uh, two things. One is is that your byline was your signature, and I always had signed my signature SL Price. And the other thing was, um, uh, it, it just is a, a, a way for me to avoid uh, having the first name, and it's, it's the it's the one place where you control it, where you control your name. So I figured um, I'll I'll do it that way, and and you know hope nobody pays attention. But yeah, I've, I've taken a lot of ribbing for it. And now it's your handle on Twitter. You're at at by SL Price yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Well, so. at this point, it's it's too late because it's essentially my it's my my uh, calling card that you know has a circulation of about three. But but there it is. <laughs> yeah. Now, Scott, you've been an inspiration to 
so many young writers. Uh, I want our listeners to know that Kevin Van Valkenburg, who was our guest on the last podcast, my colleague at ESPN, was so thrilled to meet you at a bar in D.C. about a year ago. I mean, I, I had the pleasure of introducing Kevin to you. I mean, you're one of his writing heroes. You're a hero, a writing hero to many young journalists who, you know, basically became fan, a fan of yours through the best American sports writing. Um, and you also were an inspiration to me. Back in 1996, there was a huge snowstorm in New York City. Uh, Lizette and I were visiting Miami. My wife, Lizette Alvarez, and I were in Miami visiting Scott. And Scott was sort of ambling around his Coral Gables neighborhood on a 70-degree day. Um, He had his Birkenstocks on and shorts and a T-shirt. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. Actually, Scott didn't know what day it was. kept saying, what day is it? What day is it? And I looked at him and said, I want to be Scott Price. I, you know, I, I want the writing life from home. Uh, and how can I do that? Scott's this cool guy. I've been friends for a few years. I'm a New York Times guy grinding it out in the snow up in New York. And I'm thinking, how can I do that? Uh, and I know you remember that, Scott. And, and, and I think actually at the time I was like, man, you got the greatest gig ever. And, and, and you did. And, and now we both do. Right. I mean, it's just it's amazing how privileged we are. No, it's it's astounding. I mean, I, you know, the, the fact is, is that I am one of those. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, uh, I would try. I, I'm, there are two things I want. I, I, I would always want to do. I don't know if I was going to be a writer or not, but I love the idea of traveling. I didn't love my hometown. I wanted to get out of it. I wanted to travel around the world. I didn't have much money uh, growing up. And um, you know, I'm, I, my kids will will attest to this. Uh, you know, when their friends come over, it's it's a grind for them because I constantly am asking them questions. And and you know, the last thing they want is is their their dad to be you know peppering their adolescent friends with questions. And and all their friends know this about me. And and it's really just I, I I'm that weird guy who basically uh, you know was is sidling up to you at a at a at a train station or in an airport or or anywhere and saying hey well you know what what are you all about. And, and asking people questions. That's a, sort of a conversational mode I've always had. And the fact is, is that, you know, I've been able to do those two things, travel around the world and, and, and ask people questions, uh, just because I find people mostly overall fascinating. Their stories are fascinating. And instead of being the weird guy that people are edging away for, edging away from as quickly as possible, um, because I work for uh, the Miami Herald or the Sacramento Bee or Sports Illustrated, uh, they're willing to sit there and take it and, and actually talk to me and engage in conversation. And I mean, it, it's an it's a stunning privilege that uh, you, but it, I mean, I certainly feel it's been a privilege for me um, because I, I had no other... I really had no other um, chip to play. I mean, you know, I was a, I was a an English major at college, and I, it's not like I can do many other things. I can chop wood, and I can you know uh, fold clothes. You know, I mean, and 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 hopefully once in a while write a piece that I can be proud of. But but I, I I've got nowhere else to go, and I was just just been lucky enough to in two ways. One is I came out during the golden age of journalism in the mid '80s, which mm-hmm. was which was uh, you know, post Watergate, so all uh, so all these newspapers, and not just high level newspapers, but mid level newspapers in Des Moines and Sacramento and San Jose and all the Florida papers in Southern California were ambitious and had money to burn and 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 money to spend on 
somebody who they thought has potential but certainly isn't there yet but they had room to to hire people like that and that was me and so i was lucky to come out in that uh, that era um there's no chance i think i would have been hired out of college today it's it, the competition is 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 far it's far better uh, and far better prepared and certainly a better better writers than i was and 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 and, and nobody could afford it I, I think today to really take a flyer on on some on a talent like like me at that time. So so I was inordinately lucky, and then I, I was lucky enough to to be hired by people who gave me a chance and let me fail repeatedly right. for yeah. about six years. You mentioned earlier uh, that you couldn't wait to get out of your hometown. Wh- what was your hometown, and why couldn't you? Why were you dying to get out of there? You know, I, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, which, which, frankly, you know, this is part of this is just melodramatic adolescent angst, and um, and you know, part of it was uh, my my home was a a bit crazy. Uh, I had uh, brothers that had uh, who had. <laughs> multiple uh, uh, adventures to, to, to put it obliquely and um, uh, it, it was a really tense atmosphere and I really felt um, Stanford in general was was a you know, pretty uninteresting suburb of, of New York. Turns out I was I was wrong in some ways. I went back in 1999 to do a story on Bobby Valentine who's the big hero from Stanford, Connecticut. And it turns out that for the first time, I had to turn all my reporting tools and, and objectivity uh, to a certain extent on to my hometown and actually learn about my hometown like I would any other parachute job. And it turned out to be a far more fascinating place that I ever gave a credit for as a teenager. Um, but I really just, you know, I had the gas. I wanted to get out of town. Um, I wanted to get as far away as possible. I went to school in North Carolina after uh, transferring from the University of Connecticut, and then I got a job in California. And and, and frankly, if, if if I'd been able to get a job in Hawaii at that point, I would have I would have gladly taken that. I mean, I just felt the need desperately to get get out of there. I thought it was bad for me for many many reasons. And frankly, overall, I I think that was wrong. But the gasoline. Uh, the fuel that 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 gave me, either either uh, you know self diluted as it was, um, uh, pushed me to to work harder. Well, you ended up at uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, and timing is everything in life. And yeah. you happened to be there at the same time as Michael Jordan, and so I'm going to read from the Daily Tar Heel uh, a piece that was published. Um, actually, almost 25 years ago today. 30. 35. No, you're yeah. right. 35 years ago. Oh, yeah. my God. 35 years ago. Is Man. it today? Is that right? <laughs> almost. It's so January 24th. We're, we're recording this on January 10th. So, right. so just two weeks ago. You're right. 35 years, not 25 years. Man, when did we get old, Scott? I mean, geez. Yeah, it's all over. And yeah. so the headline uh, from the Daily Tar Heel is, here comes Mr. and then in parentheses, Michael and Jordan, the byline is by S.L. Price, sports editor. I just want to read the first two paragraphs to our listeners, and I want to ask you about it. Here's the lead in, in the second graph. Check out Michael Jordan. Look at his hands, dangling like two big frying pans from his thin arms. Note how his puppy-like feet bear the bruises and blisters and scars of many a basketball battle, blisters that will heal only to open up again the next time Michael Jordan takes to the court. Watch Michael fly. There he is on the right wing. There's that fluid first step. He's passed you now, and the ball is cradled in those big hands. He's mashed it through the net and is halfway up court while you're still watching the ball drop to the floor. 
Now, that was posted on Twitter right before the end of the year. Uh, I love those two paragraphs. We talked about this and you were like, oh, God, you know, it, it's embarrassing. Tell me what, what your thought is when you read that and tell me what it was like being with Michael Jordan. I mean, you know, going through the motions of learning how to be a sports journalist and covering the greatest, you know, greatest athlete, arguably, of all time. Well, a couple things. You, you said that was January 24th, 1982? 1983 is the 1983. date. Okay, so that was written essentially on my 20 uh, the day before my 21st birthday so that and i never realized that until you said the date right now and the interesting th well two things one is is that this was jordan's I, I was a senior and this was jordan's sophomore year now he had he his previous year he really didn't become michael jordan until the last play essentially of the 82 season when he hit the jumper that beat Georgetown to win the national championship, Dean Smith's first national championship. And so he came into the, uh, to Chapel Hill and he was known as Mike Jordan. That was his, that was his name in the bio. Nobody knew who he was essentially, you know, there wasn't the recruiting craziness, uh, you know, blogs and, uh, you know, the internet to, to let you know these things. And of course we were college journalists and we didn't know anything. Um, and then, then his sophomore year, I happened to be covering, the basketball team and um and it was uh, it was spectacular because I, I still to this day and 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 michael will i think back me up on this but i insist that 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 his sophomore year was by far his best year he, he left after his junior year but he had an, just an astounding season and it really was an arrival because he was doing things that were just incredible stealing the ball at the last second and you know to, to beat i think it was maryland or virginia Tulane. Uh, I mean, one after another, he was doing these last-second heroics, and and clearly was the 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 best player, certainly at Chapel Hill, and then very quickly the ACC, and then the nation. Um, and you know, it was I, I I didn't even know what I was doing. Of course, I had I, I had no context. I I, I had just started covering. Uh, you know, this is basketball for 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 the school newspaper, so I don't really understand you know, well, you know, compared to the, you know, other players and, 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 you know, Buck Williams or Sam Perkins or James Worthy, I, I you know, I could, it was almost too big for me to understand. But, but interestingly enough, that piece you're speaking about, which, which, as you said, I, I, I cringe when I see it or hear it now, because all you can see are the holes. And I will tell you a few years ago, I went back to Chapel Hill and, and, and I was, writing about the basketball scandal, uh, not the basketball scandal, the, the, the academic scandal. Right. And I went through the, the Daily Tar Heel for the first time. I went back to the, to, to the, the morgue there, or whatever, the, to, to go through the old clips. And, and it, was, it was horrifying. Uh, and I would advise any journalist to never go back and read their own <laughs> clips. Because not only was I bad, but I was aggressively like in your face sort of bad. I mean, it was, it was like you, you couldn't escape me and, 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 and it was bad. But anyway, so the point is, is that, so, but, but I will tell you this, when I wrote that piece, and, and I will tell you that I was, I was lifted by watching Michael Jordan. What I mean is, um, whatever he was doing, he was so great that it, it, it sort of, by watching him, I felt like I had to lift my game. And, and for the first time, that story, as bad as I feel it is, um, and it's inevitable for someone, you know, going back and reading your stuff, it was the first time that I ever felt, the first time that I, and I had been writing for the newspaper for, I don't know, a year at that point. Um, uh, it was the first time I really felt in control 
of a story ever. Um, that that I, I I had a point of view. It wasn't just say what happened, get some quotes. I had an uh, an attitude about Michael Jordan that I I wanted to convey, and that was the first time that I felt that way about anything writing anything. Um, and I and I remember I when it was published and when I wrote it, it was the first time I felt buzzing and light and and. You know, I, I of course overestimated because now looking back on it, I, I, I you know, I, I, I see only its flaws. But at the time, um, it made me feel electric. One of the things, Scott, that struck me about it is you did the reporting. I mean, you say you know there was no context for this, but you talked to Jim Valvano, NC State coach, talked to a, a number of people about their view of Jordan. It wasn't just a college kid sort of waxing poetic about right. what he saw. There was reporting that backed it up, and it's something you know, that I think is indicative of your work throughout your entire career. This is the reporting. You're, you're known for your great writing, but there's always the reporting and you and your reporting is is fabulous. And even then, and that's something that really struck me. The other thing that struck me about it is just watch Michael fly. I mean, the Air Jordan was still years off and yet you were struck by Air Jordan before it was even <laughs> coined. And that jumped out at me when I when I just, you know, read it just a couple of weeks ago and and I think is is pretty remarkable. Um did you know when you were at, at North Carolina at, at Chapel Hill that you wanted to be a sports columnist? Was that something that you were dreaming about doing when you were in college or was it to write, you know, long form magazine pieces or maybe both? What were you what did you want to do when you were a kid? Well there are two things. I mean until I went to college I I wanted to be an American a history professor, and then I went there, and I went to the University <laughs> of Connecticut for two years, and I and I pretty quickly switched over to um, to English, and and a lot of in a, in a lot of ways, I was I was I was heavily influenced by my best friend Bruce Schoenfeld, who was at Harvard and is a great um, writer. He does stuff for ESPN, the magazine, and New York Times and Esquire. Um, Bruce is terrific, and and I I like to take partial credit for Bruce being at ESPN, the magazine, because. Um, you know, I vouch for him. I didn't have to vouch for him, but I I did with some editors there, and um, he's done fantastic work. Yeah, and he and he's been, you know, he 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 sort of turned me on to what was the cult of sports writing. Uh, you know, the Harvard Crimson was alive with that at the time. I I had a lot of time when I was at the University of Connecticut. I was at the Stanford campus or the branch, so I was constantly going up there, and I sort of got immersed in it, but. For me, uh, you know, I, I was like every journalist at that point. I'll say a couple things. One is, is that uh, every sports writer, I was not really heavily into Sports Illustrator, though Curry Kirkpatrick was, you know, just sort of this force of nature on the college on, on college basketball at the time. I was I was very much into Inside Sports Magazine as opposed to Sports Illustrator. I like their uh, their depth and their coverage, and you know, the, the, and there's something called the bonus that SI has always had the back of the book ten page story and they had like four or five of them and Gary Smith was one of their great writers at the time and uh, you know Gary was for a lot of us uh, you know these sort of north star of 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 in-depth sports writing um, and yeah, at the same time uh, even though I'd grown up reading the New York Times and the New York papers once I'd become alive to sports writing, I really was, was and when I was at Chapel Hill, I was reading the Washington Post. That was the big national paper that you'd get in Chapel Hill. And that George Solomon staff was, you know, Dave Kindred, who was just, to me, was in some ways equal to Gary, you know, in terms of influence on me and what I wanted to be, what kind of, the kind of sports columnist, if I ever was going to do that, uh, I, I aspired to be. Uh, but that staff was, was was insane. David Remnick was on at the time. I mean, 
ridiculous how deep that staff was and underappreciated, I think, in, in some ways. Yeah, and, and I think the only staff that, that beats that staff, I agree with you, that was a fantastic staff, is the Boston Globe yes. sports staff of the 80s. Absolutely. You know, Lee Monville, Gammons, you know. And when I went to the Sacramento Bee, I was covering the NBA. I was, I, I, I at 22, was, I think I was the youngest beat writer in, in covering the NBA. Um, uh, the Kings, I got hired to be the Kings beat writer, and that was against up against um, the Sacramento Union, which was a morning paper, so it was highly competitive. And by the way, that's how quickly I understood uh, what I didn't know, and how desperately. Uh, I, and I, that's where I began to think, well, I'm going to get fired if I don't, if I don't, because I'm going to get my ass kicked. And so, what I really began to understand, I mean. In college, you'd read Gary Smith or any of these great takeout writers, and I'd think, oh, well, you know, basically, I want to write stories like that, and they'll be essentially, I'll do a story on Michael Jordan. The facts will be the same, but 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 I'll do it in my style, and that'll make it a great story. I didn't really understand how important reporting was to writing a feature and, and, and writing anything. And frankly, that's that sort of became my animating principle based upon being a beat writer. You got to move the story ahead no matter what form it's, it's taking, whether it's, you know, a takeout, whether it's, it's a, you know, a, a game story, whether, I mean, you, either you move it ahead an inch, a yard, maybe a mile if you're lucky once every 10 years, but it's about telling the reader something new. And I, and I, frankly, I apply that to almost everything I read in terms of poetry, novels, uh, you know, political writing. Uh, I don't want to hear someone's take uh, so much as I want to learn something new. Uh, unless it's some take that's so original and a way of looking at the world that's so different, that too pushes the story ahead. But it's but so essentially that's sort of my became my animating principle. And and frankly, looking back at Gary's career, that's of course half the time you'd read Gary and you think, how the hell did he get that? You'd, you'd read stuff about Mike Tyson. You know, he'd go and get people that have been written about ad nauseum and and he'd find things that you never thought were possible to understand um, and, 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 to, and to report. And so his, the, the greatness of Gary's writing, quote unquote, was his reporting, um, the, the, the new things he told you. And when I was at Sacramento, let me just fin- finish up with this because I know this will resonate with you. Um, you know, one of those great writers from Inside Sports, Pete Dexter, yeah. who was writing oh, yeah. in Philadelphia and you know wrote Paris Trout, suddenly drops in and, and becomes the columnist, the city columnist at the Sacramento Bee while we're there. I mean, well, while I was there, I was there from 84 to 90. And it was like an alien dropping down from you know the sky because Pete Dexter was this legend who belonged in a gritty East Coast newspaper and did his incredible this incredible work here and all of a sudden he's in sacramento which in many ways is is not even california you know not spiritually any california it's very very much a midwestern town in many ways at that at least at that point it's agricultural uh, seat of of state government and 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 he just came in and he had a friendship with gregory fav who was the the managing editor of the sacramento bee and he he was just doing this astonishing work as a columnist and and his tone and his voice is still is unlike anybody else's and and um i mean frankly it's like it's like intimidating for me to even talk about pete, pete dexter i just I, I think the world of him i agree and and so was when when dexter was there we, did he become a mentor of yours no, your friend no i was scared to death of him i mean really? frankly i was i he came in just as i moved down to san francisco um uh i from 
I was there from 84 to 87 and I covered the Kings for two years and then I moved down to San Francisco in 87 and I was covering you know the the A's and the Giants and 49ers which was this unbelievable golden age I was there for the earthquake in 89 and covered the 49ers when they when they stomped the Broncos um, in the Super Bowl um, so it was just it was just this unbelievable thing and and frankly I was I would have I wouldn't know of what to have said to Pete Dexter I mean I, I sort of and in many ways it's, it's sort of like I didn't want to meet him I just wanted to read him because uh, I, I I didn't want anything to just sort of dispel my, that aura he had for me and uh, yeah I, I just found it and and then he moved up he moved to Seattle and was writing from there for a while at least Whidbey Island I think is where where he, where he lives now but he was writing for a while from there so I never I don't think our paths ever crossed physically, and I'm and, I'm, and I was kind of thankful for it. <laughs> yeah, but reading Dexter, did did reading him as a columnist, did that inspire you or make you, you know, even more want to be a columnist? Because shortly after that, you went to Miami, and you were, you know, uh, you and Edwin Pope were the the two main sports columnists of Miami. Yeah, but I was I was I, I actually um, you got it a little bit wrong. Bob Rubin was the second columnist there, and I was sort of this weird hybrid. I was doing long stories like 80 inch stories for the and then i was doing game coverage and then i was writing columns and i was ne- i was sort of this i was neither nor you know i was uh, and and so I, I was i was writing certainly a lot of columns and then i had a sunday column in tropic magazine every three weeks so and that was more like an essay so uh, it, it was weird because i was a strange animal i didn't i didn't quite um I wasn't a pure columnist. I wasn't a pure t- takeout writer. And frankly, I was, I mean, there were times when I, I mean, I was, for a while, I covered the expansion beat. I, uh, you know, along with Norm Clark of Denver, broke the story that Miami was getting a baseball team. Uh, you know, so it was, you know, I really had this strange uh, hybrid job. And, um, and, and frankly, I, you know, I, I liked being a columnist and I liked the freedom it gave you, but I was, it's sort of like Kindred. Um, he was sort of my template in many ways for being a columnist, and that's probably not the best template. I, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had an opinion on everything every day. I wanted to sometimes write, you know, you know, this guy should be fired, but I also wanted to write some, you know, what's essentially a feature story on somebody in a column, and, and you know, and so I, which is what Kindred that. Right, but he was much better. I, I wasn't a very good columnist, I think overall, and and I think part of it was it's just not my nature. Um, I don't feel like I need the world that that the world needs to hear what I have to think every day. And I think, frankly, I mean, I, you know, the, the, Mitch Albom, Lupica, um, there are guys who are born to it who really should be columnists, and they're and they're great at it. And and I I just don't think I had the I, like when people would get upset about what I wrote, I, I always think, well, what are you getting so upset about? It's just my opinion. You know, it's like, you got your opinion. And of course, that's not exactly the right attitude, I think, for a columnist. You got to feel like the world needs to hear what you have to say and, and, and should hear what you have to say. And I, I, I just didn't have that impulse. I was more interested in, frankly, I was more interested in what other people thought than what I thought. Yeah, no, it, it, it's definitely uh, your work has shown that repeatedly that you know you love digging deep into subjects and uh, and then and then writing about them in a completely unique way and bringing your perspective to it. I wanted to ask you, Scott, a little bit about the Miami Herald newsroom. We were both there for Hurricane Andrew uh, in August of 1992, of course, and and also just that newsroom was just so steeped with talent and. 
really one of the most fun places ever. Um, I mean, you left the newsroom to go to SI in 1994, and we'll talk about that jump that you made, but that's the last time you were in a newsroom. Um, it's the newsroom that I'll, I will always remember as the most fun place journalistically um, that I've ever been in. It just there, there was just a laugh track to the place. Uh, a legendary editor by the name of Gene Miller, who's a two-time Pulitzer winner. Um, I used to say that page one of the Miami Herald was directly connected to Gene Miller's funny bone. I mean, if you could, <laughs> if you could make Gene Miller laugh, right? Uh, you know, you were going to go right on one A at the Miami Herald, and um, so I'm. I just would love to hear your thoughts about that and how much of that culture. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a hyper competitive place because there was so much talent around and also so much fun. And how much did that um, shape you as a writer and as a journalist? Well, I mean, first off, I, you know, I, I actually um, when I left Sacramento, almost went to the Boston Globe. Uh, there was a, a, a job opening and Don Squar was interested in hiring me, uh, the sports editor there. And then. It was Ron Borges who was who was leaving the Globe, I think, to go to Denver to work, and um, they were going to offer me the job. And then at the last second, in fact, maybe they did offer me. I, I can't remember. We, we 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 were. I certainly flew to Boston and talked to people. So I believe there was a job offer. And then at the last second, uh, after accepting the job, I think they even put his name on the on uh, or his face on on delivery trucks. Uh, Borges changed his mind, and so the opening closed up. And then I ended up going to the Miami Herald. I mean, it was an incredibly. I mean, and as you said, the Globe had the Globe had an equally intimidating staff. Um, but the amazing thing to me was, I mean, I, I was so lucky to go to Miami because because first of all, if you can't write a good story in Miami, I mean, the 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 news there, the the events there, the human dynamics, the pressures and the tensions of Miami, the corruption, are so spectacular. Not you know, sort of bureaucratic paper shuffling, but you know, you know beheading type, uh, 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 decapitation type spectacularness. Um, you know, just everything was, was, you know, taken to the nth degree, almost to a cartoonish level. If you can't write a, if you couldn't write a good story in Miami at the, um, down there, you really should have retired from, from newspaper. Anybody who, who's worked in Miami knows what I'm talking about. It's the best news town in America. It's spectacular yeah. news town. Yeah. And, and, and so, and, and by the way, working in a, in a newsroom is, it's why, in some ways, it's what we love about journalism most because it's 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 really, literally the most just just incredibly exciting um, to every day walk in and be surrounded by people who are who are wide awake and 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 electric about their work and 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 then to have them all be so incredibly talented um, uh, really pushed you and and you you just wanted to. You wanted to be in the same room. You just wanted to be able to stay in the same room and not be laughed out of the room. So, so everybody was pushing. You were you were constantly trying to write great stuff um, and get great stories. And and you know the energy level was was through the roof. And uh, and at the same time, of course, you know the Herald was making money, um, and uh, it had Tropic Magazine as well. So the, you had room to write these incredibly long magazine like. Uh, um, uh, uh, features and and pieces and and it also in, they encourage you to be weirdly it was a very loose place I mean from Dave Barry to Carl Hyacin to to Meg Laughlin to to you guys uh, uh, you know you and and <laughs> you know the investigative crew I mean um, it, it, it was incredibly um, 
creative tension was a big deal with Knight Ritter at the time, but but there was this looseness there that allowed you the freedom to to experiment and 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 do different things. They also, you know what, too, Scott. They also just were not afraid to kick ass. I mean, well, yeah. you know, they, they they there was such a premium placed on taking down, you know, the corrupt county commissioner, uh, the corrupt judge, um, you know, whatever, so- somebody who just makes a fool of himself publicly. There was no hesitation whatsoever. There were, they, there was, uh, th- that, that's my memory of the place is, yeah. is, is, is Gene Miller, uh, and other editors, um, cheering us on as we, as we took on, you know, sacred cows and, and actually some of the biggest and most powerful institutions in Miami. Absolutely. And there was an incredible swagger to the place and a responsibility because, I mean, frankly, there are very few cities that are as corrupt um, uh, consistently as Miami and, and, and needing, of, needing a real watchdog. And, and the Herald took that responsibility incredibly seriously um, and, and yet at the same time with a sense of fun. I mean, I, it's hard to sort of say that because nobody really, when you think about journalism, we're also self-serious, but it was incredibly fun and it, incredibly it fun to read and incredibly fun to write and report. It was. Um, I mean, I can still hear Gene Miller. He called everybody champion. <laughs> when he'd leave at night, he'd go, get him, get him, get him. I mean, that was that was the ethos of that place. And But it was also a great writer's paper. Um, you know, some of the, you know, best writers uh, – came out of there um at you know and and great writers that distinguished themselves at the New York Times and the Washington Post um came out of there it was a sort of farm system for that too and I, but I want to ask you about your about your column writing a little bit more before we jump into Sports Illustrated um when you were there um I, one of the things that struck me about your column writing you know and you you touched on it before when you said that it's it's it wasn't so much that you wanted your opinion heard but you would report them um, but by the same token, you know, you, you did have strong opinions about things and you were, you know, a, a, a big city sports columnist. And, and, and it's funny that I don't remember that Bob Rubin was the number two. You corrected me because you had an outsized presence very quickly when you got there. And what was noteworthy about your work, Scott, and we were really young then, we're, you know, I was in my mid twenties when I first started reading you is that there was a maturity to your writing. Um, and I think a lot of that came from the reporting that you did. Um, you had a very mature voice, um, from the first time I started reading you, which I found really striking. And I think part of it is because you always wanted to write not just about sports. You wanted to write about culture. You wanted to write about history. Um, and these are things that, you know, of, of course, we've seen in the four books you've done and a lot of work you did for SI. So I'm curious about that. Was that something that you purposefully early on were trying to accomplish as a writer to sort of stretch beyond sports um, and look at its place in American culture? Well, I, I mean, yes. I mean, I've always been fascinated by the intersection of, of 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 sports and culture. And the fact is, is that my first assignment when I landed at the Miami Herald, I mean, I, I got there in, in the in, essentially in the spring of 1990. I maybe did two stories, and then I was sent to Europe for for you know seven weeks. The first five of them to cover the World Cup, right. and and you can. There's nothing that sort of, there's nothing like World Cup soccer to tell you about the importance of sport and the cross-section of sport with the cultures that each team represents and how important it is to, as a, as a, as a form of identity. And it also taught me that 
um, people really reveal themselves and their cultures when they're most passionate. They don't lie when they're passionate. If they're in the stands screaming, if they're on the field playing, there's something there. There's a, there's a, an honesty there about sports and, and a revealing uh, nature to it that that allows you insight into them as people and uh, and into the cultures that that they come from. And so. I, you know, when you're in, when you cover, there's no event like covering the World Cup. And I've been to 10 Olympics. The Olympics don't even come close because, because unlike the Olympics, the World Cup is about a, is, is soccer, is football. And it's a game that every single person in the world has played to a certain extent. I'm talking outside the United States has played and thinks they're an expert on and cares desperately about high, low, rich, poor, doesn't make a difference. And so the, and, and so the World Cup is massively important in a way to, to all classes in a way that the Olympics are not. And so when I was in Rome and, and Italy covering the World Cup, you literally felt like you were in the center of the universe and, 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 and the center of an, of an important event, um, not, not a sideshow, not an entertainment, but something that really was desperately important to people. And so uh, it was, you know, it was uh, mind bending for me to do that. And, and that probably informed a lot of my feeling about sports and and, and the intersection of sports and culture ever, ever, ever since then. The other thing was, is that being in Miami, um, you know, Cuba was massively important uh, for obvious reasons in Miami. And, and one of my first assignments there was the 1991 Pan Am games. And I go to, I go to the, in, in, in Havana and for the first time, that's the largest influx of journalists in like 35 years at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm covering the boxing and going all over the, the, the island. And the last day of boxing, the Cuban boxers, I think 10 of them, uh, you know, uh, they won 10 weight classes, I think, that day, you know, pounded the Americans. Felix Savone uh, beats the hell out of Shannon Briggs. And in the stands, Fidel Castro was doing the wave. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, this is this. So, th again, sports and culture. I mean, uh, you know, this is a um, no matter what you say about the, you know, the Castro regime, the, the fact that they even were able to get and by the way, had athletes building stadiums and 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 working and and carrying sandbags and 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 you know laying bricks to to get the Pan Am Games done on time. Again, the idea of sports as a vehicle of expression and 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 really what people feel purely about putting their passions into um, was again hammered home to me. Um, so so the, the combination of those two things. Um, and then the defectors, uh, the parade of defectors that that continued through the '90s, really uh, had a massive impact on me. Well, you had an opportunity to go to Sports Illustrated, and I, I vividly remember this when you got the offer. You you hesitated. You weren't you weren't sure you wanted to make the jump from Miami to the premier sports writing destination at that time in America. Uh, and it was because, I remember this vividly as well, you had this itch to go beyond sports possibly and write about news um, for Tropic Magazine, the Sunday Magazine of the Miami Herald. Um, and I still remember, and I, I wonder if you remember too, I, I practically was yelling at you saying like, <laughs> What are you thinking? I mean, this is a, you know, this SI is awesome. I mean, I, you know, you loved inside sports as a kid. I did too, but Sports Illustrated for me was, was it. I mean, that was the, the place when I was young that I dreamed about writing for, um, even more than the New York Times, actually. And so, um, talk about that hesitation a little bit. I'm curious your memory of that. And, um, when you got there, um, you know, did you have any regrets early on? 
Well, I mean, my biggest hesitation stemmed from, I mean, they were giving me a nice pay raise, but but my biggest has, and it took me five weeks to, to decide. My biggest hesitation was that I loved working for a newspaper. Not only that, but I loved working, I mean, aside from the energy and the, 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 the real hop that you get working in a newsroom, I loved being a part of of a greater whole. What I mean is that sports was only one section. That there was that there was the the, the Sunday magazine. There was there was the there was the Metro desk. There was the uh, political desk. There was all these different avenues, and I loved being part of that. I I, I and I never really envisioned myself at a sports only publication because I didn't know how long I would be doing sports. Um, and uh, you know. The Miami Herald was offering me a chance to write for new, write news, and do more stuff for Tropic, and and um, so it was it was really tough for me. And I and I loved also the grounding of having an institution that's part of a city, um, and 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 swinging away, digging in its heels on the city, and and swinging away in that city, and 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 making a difference in a place. So I, I there are many things about it that that were attractive to me about the Herald. Now, fairly quickly after I. After I left SI, I didn't have time to regret it because I mean, this, my second story for SI was was to go do something on. I went down to Colombia and did the uh, a story on the influence of the drug cartels on 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 the soccer teams in Colombia before the '94 World Cup, and uh, an amazing story. I, 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 you know, it was my second story, and it was it remains one of the most quietly frightening stories I've ever worked on because it was just you had this air of menace the entire time. Uh, uh, that was sort of trailing you as a reporter, and it was my second story for SI. And talk about the the cross pollination of sports and culture. Right. Um, so as a result, it wasn't like I felt like I wasn't getting a chance to do the kinds of things that really, really deep down um, uh, made my motor run. And so, so, and then like within a year or two, um, the Herald started started contracting. I mean, it, you know, uh, Tropic you know, was shuttered. Um, the boss that I would have worked for um, on the news side uh, doing stuff, you know, had to leave. Yep. And so, so um, no, going, it was absolutely the greatest decision I ever made to go to SI. And, and, uh, and so your screaming at me was absolutely justified, <laughs> which is, by the way, something you've never let me forget. And I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it was definitely the right right decision, uh, proven proven to be for sure. Um, I want to ask you about your writing craft and the way you approach stories. You you have this lovely phrase which I have borrowed from you and have always tried to attribute it to you anytime I discuss it, and that is when you write, you have to be the god of your story, as you put it. What does that mean? Well, it sounds sort of insane and ego maniacal but bear with me but bear with me it, it, it actually it's it's a it's it's actually a game you have to play with yourself that's that's how i feel about it what i mean is you have to report and 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 by the way desperation and fear are are very good uh, uh motivators i mean i i am a parachute guy i'm not someone who covers the defense department full-time or or a baseball beat writer and and I, I can't tell you how much respect I have for those guys um, and and the men and women who do that because I'm they're steeped in in knowledge that I'll never have but what I have to do is I, I uh, time and time again starting with Columbia or the World Cup I suddenly I have to sort of drop into a situation and eventually become the expert and 
uh, and then and do it in public. And, and for people who are the experts, you know, they're, they're, the people who are going to be reading me are those who actually do know what's going on there. So I, um, time and time again, feel like the report, you have to basically report as if you know nothing. I mean, and, and constantly report as if you know nothing. Essentially, the opposite of, of, of the god of your story, you're the dog of the story. I mean, basically, <laughs> you, are, you have to work like a dog and then and report and make as many phone calls as you possibly can, read everything, call again, and, 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 and I have a list you know, that I'll make up of people to call. And if I think I have the story down, I'll still push myself to call even those people who, who I don't think are necessary anymore. And every single time I do that, I learn something new that at times has changed the story completely. But the point is, is that you're reporting constantly and, and trying to fill that massive hole in your knowledge uh, so that you can write you know, eventually write a story. But eventually, there's this weird tipping point where, and it's happened to me over and over again, there's eventually a point where I, where you get to that, where you can convince yourself, I think I've got this nailed. I think I, think I understand what's going on. And then you have to write with that confidence, because you have to have the authority to say, you know, to, that, uh, that allows you to write with strength um, about the subject, um, and at the same time, when you're done writing, when you're you know for the day, you know the next morning, I would wake up and think, ah, oh, I haven't got it yet, and then I'll stay, start making more phone calls. The holes become apparent, right? Exactly. As you're writing a draft, yeah, exactly. And so I would realize I don't know this, I don't know that. I've got to yeah. call this person. So I would write at night, feeling, and and again, there are times when the writing isn't going well. But overall, you're like, I'm in charge here. This this goes here. The architecture is like this. This section's about this. This answers this question or, or addresses this question. And then I'd wake up in the morning with my stomach sort of turning over and you're like, you don't know anything. And so there's this constant dance between being the god and being the dog. And 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 it's uh it's it's <laughs> it's it's no wonder that that reporters and writers are so neurotic because you know you're you're constantly walking that tightrope and one only and you can't write with any authority unless you approach it completely humbly. You know, you you can't have that arrogance of I think I know what's going on here. I know what's going on here uh, unless you the next, you know, within 12 hours are saying to yourself, I don't know anything. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a con, right? Yes. I mean, you're, you're, you're sort of conning yourself at a critical moment in uh, your reporting. And you, you, there, there comes a moment where you feel, I know this subject better than anybody else. And so now I'm prepared to sit down and I'm the authority, the worldwide authority on the subject, even though you're really not. Right. Uh, the people you're writing about it, know their emotions and and know certain aspects of what you're about to write about far better than you'll ever know. Right. But it's a con. Right. And, and you have to but but you it's you a have con. You have to believe you, it though. You have to believe it or yeah. else or else you know you won't be able to write with confidence. I mean essentially you know a con you know, has a negative connotation to it, but it, but but the full word is confidence. It's a confidence game. Right. Writing is a confidence game, and the fact is, is when you have confidence, you can write well. If you don't have confidence, you're a wreck. And 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 the critical part of it, and I, and I say this to young you know college students and young journalists all the time, is yeah, the first half of it is you have to report with total insecurity. That Absolutely. There is, you know, I, I I'm the same way. I'm always fearful and wondering what don't I know there's a lot more to this that I just don't know and that 
that is the motivator. That does put the jet fuel in my tank to make the 20 extra phone calls and to try to see as many people as possible. So you can, when you make that con, uh, actually at least have some um, thought in your mind like, okay, well, at least I, I put in the hard work to get here. Now I am the authority because I, you know, I made the extra, extra phone calls and, and right. they're, and they're critical. And that, and that's what gets you to what you were saying earlier about Gary Smith and some of these other great writers. They're telling you something new. That's the premium. I mean, there's, there's, and there's less and less of that with every passing year because there's fewer journalists who are given the time and the space and have the great privilege to really dig into subjects as deeply as you and I get still get to do. Well, not just the time and the space, but but both those things are a function of money. And and you know, it's my, you know, I, I might be leaping ahead on you, but it was part of my essay or whatever yes. that I wrote for for the Sunday Long Reads, which is that I feel like it's an underrated part of journalism. The fact is, the Miami Herald had that swagger in Miami. You could tell rider trucks to take a hike. You could tell you know the city council to take a hike. If you if you're not going to talk to us again, if you're not going to give us your advertising, that's okay. We've got the we've got a monopoly on 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 classified ads. We've got uh, we know who we are, and we're we're going to uh, keep at this story, and and we can afford literally to do that. Um, that's that's sort of the the undermining of that confidence through the the demolition of the the business model in journalism is sort of an uncovered story i believe in in journalism over the last 20 years and 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 frankly i think it's it's um it's it's a big part of the story i think i think journalists in many ways we we've 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 sort of lost track of who we are because because the confidence has been eroded um and you're not sure if uh you know about the business, you're not sure about the future, and you're not sure about your relationship with, you know, with sources or, or at least um, the businesses in town or the powers that be. Uh, newspapers feel themselves much more vulnerable. And as a result, it, it really has an effect, I think, on, on the work. Now, Trump aside, that's that's changed things in many ways. I think there's been a, a revitalization of the mission, but but the hollowing out of the business model has really gone a long way, I think, toward undermining on the ground reporting, especially now again, Washington Post, New York Times, they're still, you know, hammering away. But especially in the middle mid-level papers um, that used to be so strong uh, in America as a training ground and as watchdogs on their cities, those the, that that confidence has surely been eroded, and and it's and it's really bad. It's a bad bad thing for the republic. It is, and and you're right. The confidence did come from the money. It came from the 20 to 25% profit margins, as, as you wrote about in the essay. And, and it, it came from the confidence that you had that there is not the sort of Damocles hanging over your head and could fall at any moment, um, that there would be another round of buyouts that are going to blow you and all your friends out of a, out of a place. Right. Um, you know, you're, that, that's not reporting with fear because you don't know something. That's reporting with fear because you're worried that next week you're going to get a pink slip. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a much higher level. Uh, of anxiety, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's existential. It's existential, and it's and it's not that it's not the way journalists uh, can do their best work. You're right. distra- you're distracted. You're skittish. You're right. you're worried that the next story you do is is not going to please your editor, and then you're going to be suddenly thrust upon that list. Yeah. 
no swashbuckler has ever been known as being distressed or distracted. Right, that's <laughs> you know, right. Uh, you know, yeah. they, they, there's a freedom that comes from the confidence of knowing that your editor and your institution has your back, um, and that, and that, you know, that whatever you uncover is going to be backed up with the authority and 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 presence of of, um, you know, your newspaper, your journalistic institution. Yeah, and I, I highly recommend our listeners if you if you miss Scott's uh, essay that was in the uh, December tenth uh, edition of the Sunday Long Read about this. Um, it's it, it, it's highly recommend you go back and and take a look at it. We'll link to it um, here uh, off the podcast. Um, I want to go back and ask you when you were at SI early on, um, whose ideas were your, the stories that you did? Were there your ideas? Were there editors' ideas? Was it a mix? And, and then, and then more broadly, um, you know, I, I know it's taken years sometimes for you to do stories, to develop them. You'll have an idea and you put it on the, on the sort of side burner. And I want to talk a little bit about that as well. And I'm thinking about the Mick, Rick Majerus piece. Um, I mean, essentially, I, I, it's probably always been about 50 50. I mean, I'll, I'll have ideas. Um, and, um, and it, it, and then I would have editors who who also came to me with ideas. It was pretty simple. I mean, and 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 great ideas. I mean, I wrote. I mean, it's, you know, two of my books. You know, one on Aliquippa and one on Mike Coolbaugh, um, who was killed. A uh, minor league baseball coach who was killed by a foul ball. Both those ideas came from editors. Literally, both of them were like, "Hey, what do you think of this? Why don't you go up there and see see what's going on?" And and so, uh, Rick Majerus was a. Uh, he was the famous coach of, of Utah, and then he was a commentator for a while, and then went back to St. Louis University. And um, I mean, that was, that, was, uh, that was from me being at a Miami Heat game. And uh, I, I was speaking to somebody at, at a Heat game and, uh, who was familiar with Majerus at, at Utah. Uh, and at the time, he was telling me these astonishing stories about Rick Majerus. And, uh, and, and this was years be- before he, he got back in. And, and uh, I, I, that night, sent an email to my editor. I said, look, if in, we, we can't do anything now in Majerus because he's, he's just a TV commentator. But if he ever gets back to coaching again, I've got to do a story on Rick Majerus. I mean, it, it just – and, and, and that hung about for about three, four years until Majerus got back to St. Louis University. And, and the, the cool thing about that was uh, I, I sort of – I have a soft spot for that story because – it was. It was. I, I knew some things going in about the reporting that were interesting tr- strategically. One is, is that because there had been that that long um, gap, um, I knew that the people who had played for Majerus um, would be free. I, I suspected they'd be freer to talk about what had happened to them with him at, at Utah, as opposed to um, if he were still coaching there or if, or if it had been. Uh, about that time. So I just felt like it, the timing was good. And also because that his their experience with him at Utah was still the most relevant experience to draw on because that was his previous coaching stop. So I sort of benefited from this from this um, this gap and it allowed me to sort of press people a little more uh, from the outset. And, uh, and so when I would report, I would, of course, you know, talk to one guy, he'd tell me a story and it was on the record. Then I'd go to the other and the other guy, uh, another player would say, Oh, he said that it's on the record. Okay. I'll sure. I'll talk about it. And, you know, once two people were talking off, they went. And so, I, but at the same time, look, a lot of this story was about Rick Majerus being naked yes. <laughs> and, 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 and his sort of strange, strangeness, 
Um, but what I didn't want to do, and I really appreciate SI for this, was I, I, I knew I could have written an AP story that began with Rick Majerus being naked, you know, and, and that was the big get. And, and I know that on the internet, people would have, um, would have, you know, obviously it would have become a hot topic because people love nakedness on the internet. Um, but <laughs> that, I, that would have been too easy though. I, I, I really felt like that was, you know, that, because it wasn't an abusive situation. It right. wasn't salacious, weirdly. It was just strange. And I wanted to understand what it meant about Rick Majerus' strangeness. I did not. And so I, I, when I filed the story, you'll notice I did not talk about his nakedness up high. And I, I kept thinking, well, somebody's going to say to me, hey, you know, you really got to, you know, raise this higher in the story. And, and, and SI was the editors were, were great and seeing what I was trying to do. And, and, and so I, I, and, and being able to resist putting that up high, I, I, I felt like, okay, I'm, I've, I've got to control myself here because I, I, uh, the reporter in me <laughs> would want to put that as high as possible, but I thought it's going to get in the way of, of trying to understand the greater picture. And the okay. Greater so when, so be, because you can write like Scott Price, you can put the nakedness two-thirds of the way down in a story entitled The Life and Times of Rick Majerus. Here is the lead. I want to read the lead because it's one of my favorite leads you've ever written. It's published in January of 2008 in SI. Something about the game. Was it the rat-a-tat of a ball dribbled on a wooden floor? The stink of sweat and morning breath mixed with drafty gym air? The thousands of shuffling feet on game night? The voices rising as tip-off nears? Yes, all that. But even more, it was the thought of those young faces looking at him, waiting. It was practice that brought Rick Majerus back. Because there he had the answers. Because there, in his watchmaker precise breakdowns of what the fan later mistook for improvisation and flow, was where he lived. He learned this while bombing around the country the last three years. Another ex-coach TV analyst with his face pressed against the glass around basketball, but not truly in it. Practice was pure. Practice was subject to opponents' whims or the pressure of parents frowning from the stands or some producer chiding him for essentially declaring on air that the mere sight of actress Ashley Judd was better than porn. Practice was his alone. It's great. I love it. It's a great piece. I highly recommend our, our listeners to go check it out if you haven't read it already. Um, I want to ask you about the process of turning magazine pieces into books. You you talked a little bit about it earlier, Scott, about the, the two books you did on Mike Kulbaugh, uh, the first base coach for the AA uh, Tulsa team who was struck along the first baseline and killed with a baseball and then heart of the game. Your, your Al Equipa biography were both ideas of editors and not yours. Um, why did you decide to turn magazine pieces into books? How difficult is it? And is it something you would do a third time? Well, I mean, Cool Ball was the first one I had done it with. And, and I can't remember the length of that story, but I do remember that I had been at SI for more than 20 years at the time. Actually, actually you've been at SI only, I think, 13 years at the time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. You started in 94. It was 2007. Oh, okay. All right. So, so, um, it's all beginning. It's all a muddle at this point. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, so anyway. So the, um, and it, as long as I had been at SI, you know, when I when I would write a long story, 
I always would feel like I had squeezed everything I could out of the story. The, the Cool Boss story was the first time that I had ever written a story for SI where I felt like I, I had not even scratched the surface of it. Um, I, I, let's say it was 7,000 words. Um, I felt like this is, this is the first time where I left so much in the notebook. What ha there was a lot more there than, than the uh, magazine piece. And I really wanted to tell a, a story about, um, about minor league baseball and sort of get into uh, what the life of minor league baseball is like, what the atmosphere was like, um, what, what, what it is to be a minor league baseball player. And I thought that, that in some ways it was, I, I, I lucked, lucked out, and this is an unfortunate way of putting this, but I mean, we're talking about the life of, of a guy, uh, Mike Coolbaugh, um, first base coach, and, the, and, and the, the life of Tino Sanchez, who, who hit the foul ball that killed Mike Coolbaugh, and he felt incredibly guilty about it. Um, and, and, but both of them were minor league lifers, and I thought, you know, one was, one, one was in the uh, minor leagues, I think, for Tino was there for 11 years, I think, and Mike for 17. And I felt through that, through their two lives, I could really get a sense of, of what minor league baseball was like. So I, I, I didn't have a problem expanding that. Like, I didn't, I didn't think I was stretching it, um, uh, you know, just because it was a, uh, on a, a subject that I thought would sell books. In fact, you know, quite the contrary. I, I, it's a pretty minor, you know, low key. It's not, it's not, you know, the Jimmy Johnson story or, you know, uh, Bill Belichick or something like that. I mean, this is, this is not a book that's going to sell millions, but I really felt like I just needed to tell that story. And this, and with Aliquippa, um, uh, I, that was the longest story I'd ever written for SI. I think it ended up being 10,000 words. Um, and that too, I felt, I just, I just have not, this, this town, I, the story that I told in, in SI was very much a football story um, about this team and it, its importance in the town. Um, and I felt in, in all my research on Aliquippa, uh, there were so many elements about the town that, that had nothing to do with sports that were incredibly important um, that I really came to feel that the town was a microcosm of, of, of 20th century America. And so, um, I, I, I felt it was an opportunity that, that I needed to really, um, expand upon. And, and, you know, it ended up being a, a, a biography of a town, uh, essentially a hundred years, uh, long and, and, um, very, very different, I think, um, I hope than, than the, than the original piece. Um, oh, and, for sure. And, yeah. and incre incredibly ambitious. I mean, I just, um, Amazed and stunned by that feat of reporting. Yeah, uh, and I that, and I don't you know you look. Off. I've never tried that before. It literally, I've never done anything that horizontal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, starting in 1905, essentially 1906, and then running all the way. And so, I and and trying to piece that together architecturally, and 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 just you know keeping uh, the, all these different juggling all these different narrative lines. Uh, I don't know how successful it is. I, I do know that that story, like like Aliquippa, is a great story. Whether my book sort of succeeds in telling that story, it's impossible for me to say, um, because I, I literally have never tried it. But it, it did push me to places I'd never been before as a as a as a reporter and a writer, and especially in archival research. Um, it, in many ways, it, it was it was thrilling. It was thrilling thrilling work. Would you do another book? Based on a story, I mean, both of these are itches that you felt you needed to scratch. Right. Both of these, would you do another one? Uh, I would 
I would do another one. Would I do another book or would I do another book based on a story? Another book based on a story. I mean, only if I felt like um, it, I, there was there was stuff, elements of it that that hadn't been told or that I could tell a larger story. I, I, I don't want to repeat the story um, so much as scratch the itch that I felt was <laughs> unscratched um, that I that I stumbled over while doing it the first time. That's interesting. Interesting. Um, I mean, you must have had other stories where you felt you left a lot in the notebook, and yet you weren't inspired to turn them into books, right? I mean, no, absolutely. Are, yeah. In fact, most of the. In fact, I would I would say right now that those were the two that really um, stood out. The rest of the time, I've, I felt exhausted by the story, and 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 you know didn't want to. And at times, you know, it's like I don't want to read anything about it again. You know, I mean, and and even if I like the story, I feel like well, that's that's that. And, and, and there are often, you know, publishers will tell you, you know, there's, oh, well, that, you know, if you, book publishers will tell you, oh, well, that, that feels like a magazine story. That feels like, uh, the, I don't know if that could sustain a book. I, I, I'm not sure what that means, uh, but I, I do know that feeling. Like, I, there, there are plenty of stories. Um, 99% of my stories, I feel, were magazine stories that should have remained magazine stories. They, they shouldn't have been books. My first book was about presidential golf. It's called First Off the Tee, and it, it was based on a story. It was a story I did for the Week in Review section of the New York Times about Bill Clinton's habit of cheating on the golf course. This happened right after his impeachment and escaping being removed from office by the Senate. And um, when I was working on that book, it was about a month away from the deadline, and I got the call from Bill Clinton that he had agreed to play a round of golf with me, despite the fact I had accused him of cheating on the pages <laughs> of the New York Times. Yeah. And when I told you, Scott, you said, well, you got the get. The, the, you, the, I love that, just the get, the idea of that. of Because without Clinton, you know, um, my book would have, you know, faded into obscurity even faster than it already has. Um, and you got the get with Obama. Um, in December of 2007, you've had many gets in your career, but this is one I want to talk to you about because it's like Clinton with, with in my experience, Obama. Uh, you're using um, basketball as a prism into Obama, and you played with them uh, in December 2007 in Iowa before the Iowa caucuses. Um, how did that happen? Whose idea was it, and how did that how did that happen? Well, at the time, I was I was. Um I was part of a, I think it was a three-man rotation, a three-person rotation in the uh, of of columnists in the back of the. Oh yeah, the book. Rick Riley after R Riley left. And 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 frankly, I think that was that was part of. I had sort of a, a um, uh, half-baked book leave. What I mean is, I was working, um, you know, a, a week a month. Um, I get uh, uh, while well, I was on a sort of modified book leave. I think it was for the for the cool ball book. And uh, my one week was to write a column. And so I, when Terry McDonald, uh, they said, you know, what, what ideas do you have for a column? I, I sent in, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd learned, I'd read that Obama played basketball. And, uh, and um, we were about the same age. And I, um, I sent it in to Terry McDonald. Um, and immediately he got, and I, and I didn't think, you know, I, I thought at some point I'd like to play basketball with Obama. Frankly, I, I was thinking it would be more in the spring. Um, and Terry McDonald wisely, he was the editor of managing editor of Sports Illustrated at the time, wisely said, "No, no, you got to do it right now before the Iowa caucus." And he was absolutely right because if I because what happened was in Iowa, 
Obama won, and suddenly he became Barack Obama, and he was, and and it, it was a whole different thing. At the time I played basketball with him, he was one of a, you know, a, a large batch of, of Democrats, and hadn't really distinguished himself yet, and no one knew if he was going to last. Um, so he, uh, so I went out to Spencer, Iowa, with my son, who was at the time eleven, and um, I mean, the funny thing about that was. Um, and, and by the way, I, I, at the same time, I was trying to get Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal at the um, at the uh, Lipton, then Lipton tennis tournament, uh, and I spent ten days in Miami waiting around trying to get five minutes with either one of them. For some reason, it just wasn't happening. And 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 meanwhile, I I I called up. I think it was Jen Pasaki, uh, uh, who later was in the administration, and she said, "Yeah, sure." And so I ended up going to Spencer, Iowa. I got 40 minutes uh, with Obama, played two games of one-on-one. And in between, we talked all about uh, how important basketball was to him, that his father was the only gift he ever got from his dad was was his, was a basketball and uh, how a coach once called him the N-word. And, uh, you know, it, and we went into depth about, you know, just why it was important to him and how it sort of um, put him in touch with um, uh, basically his African-American heritage. Um, and you know, we, we, and we played and, and he, he, he doesn't play one-on-one. He usually plays full court. So it was, it was kind of a rare thing. And, you know, again, this is, you know, you know, big time, uh, uh, magazine journalism about, uh, uh, 10 days before I realized, well, how the hell am I going to take notes? Um, because, because you can't stop the game every, every, <laughs> every shot and write, you know, script run over to the side and scribble down some notes. Um, and so I realized that somebody had to film the game. And, uh, you know, uh, I basically got my 11-year-old son and we pulled a, <laughs> a, a sort of video camera with a tape in it out of the closet that hadn't been used in a couple of years. And I took him with me to Spencer, Iowa. And the night before, um, basically, I went and sort of warmed up, you know, was shooting at the YMCA we were going to play. And I said, look, this is how you use the camera. And whatever you do keep the camera not on me I, i'm your dad you're not going to insult me whatever you got to keep your the camera the whole time on barack obama and and so the funny thing was is that um you know obama was um warming up before the next day and my son was you know i put the fear of god into him so he had the camera trained on him and and uh you could you could still see it on the tape to obama sort of circling the court and comes over and my son is holding the camera and and then obama comes around the court and stands right next to my son and I would have you know kept put the camera down and filmed my shoe but my son because I think I because I'd scared him so much flipped the camera up so you have this kid's eye view of Obama <laughs> looking down at my son and I'm warming up and my and, and Obama's like okay so tell me about his game what's he doing and and it was very interesting because he was and, and my son of course gave me up completely well he's not in basketball shape he hasn't played in a long time right. he says his shots off like everything like Obama and Obama's like you can see the hard-ass competitor in Obama. It actually was the, the most revealing part of the entire thing was his eyes trying to game me out and and pumping my son for any kind of information that would have given him an edge. So I love it. That was great. Jack Price uh, yeah. came through big time. I want to yeah, read the did. I want to read the kicker to the story very quickly here because it's I love all your kickers and and kick you're a master of them. But this this is one of my favorite SL Price kickers. Obama hits two jumpers to go up three to two, and I remember what Michelle told me. He's very good at the last minute. All right, I say coyly, flipping him the ball. This is for the presidency. He drills a 19-footer, heels barely leaving the ground. 
Did you hear me, I say? Why do you think I hit it, he says. I back him down twice to tie four to four. He drains two more, but I swish one to cut it to six to five. Now Obama closes in, blocks my last shot, grabs the ball. He shuffles out wide, turns and sets, face blank. I thunder toward him, arm outstretched, feeling suddenly like Hillary and Edwards and anyone else in Iowa trying desperately to stop Obama's rise. The ball drops through the net like a stone. Uh, check out the piece. We'll have a link to it. One-on-one with Obama from December 24, 2007 in SI. Uh, you, you're one of your favorite movies, Scott, is Diner. It's, it's one of mine as well. Uh, the Barry Levinson film from 1982. You did a piece for Vanity Fair, uh, which is just a fabulous read. You got to screen the movie with Barry Levinson which I was extremely jealous I was not invited, or maybe I was invited and it couldn't work out. Um, but that, that story just was like a smorgasbord of fun, right? Oh, no, it was, the, it was in some ways, it was the, the greatest, you know, piece of cake I've ever had as a journalist. I mean, it, because, because, I mean, I, I obsessed, I, I was completely obsessed with this movie. I'd seen it like 30, 35 times uh, growing up. And I always thought it was an important movie. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I felt like it was the precursor to Seinfeld and, and, and Pulp Fiction, you know, the, the nonviolent parts of Pulp Fiction where they're talking about, um, you know, Arnold the pig from Green Acres and, and foot massages and that kind of thing. Um, all the sort of just BS bro talk that, that now fills in so many uh so many movies and became a real thing i felt like it all started with diner and uh but of course that was my little pet theory uh and um finally i wrote up a proposal and sent it to vanity fair and 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 graden carter and and by the way i think i mean it was through you that a connection you gave me that i was able to find somebody at vanity fair to take the proposal and um and uh graden carter it turns out he he loved the movie and and bought the premise and what happened then was, like I said, one of the great, you know, pieces of cake ever because I got to like Vanity Fair is essentially the ESPN of Hollywood. Uh, it, you know, you know, if you say you're with Vanity Fair, suddenly all these doors open up. Um, uh, it's the Bible in many ways, or it was at the time of, of the entertainment industry. And um, and you got everybody. I got everybody. I went to Jerry Weintraub's house. He came down in an elevator with a half crippled dog. I went. Uh, I was shared a bottle of wine with Steve Gutenberg and went to Daniel Stern's um, sculpture studio. And no, no, you, you're 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 forgetting a key fact of your Gutenberg bottle of wine. It was at the Monkey Bar. It was at the. <laughs> it was at, it was the at Monkey Bar. It was that's at right. Graydon Carter's <laughs> Monkey that's Bar. Right. I mean, exactly. talk about talk about the symmetry of that. That's right, and uh, and uh, no, it was just it so was. You're, just, drinking, you're drinking a bottle of wine, and then you're sending the expense report to Graydon Carter. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What, what's he going to do? Complain about the price? Yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> and you know that I, I mean I you know talked to Ellen Barkin for two hours on the phone. I mean it was just unbelievable. So it's like basically dropping into Hollywood with portfolio, um, and so everybody talked to me, and they were incredibly great, and uh, it was just a, a, a fantastic experience all in all. I, I it's one of the gifts that this that this you know profession has given me because you know instead of being again instead of being that weird guy who says oh, i really like this movie uh you know kevin bacon spoke to me about uh oh, no, i'm sorry nick hornby talk about talk to me about you know cornering kevin bacon at a party and and, and reciting the uh the chisholm trail scene to him and uh and uh, and 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 basically i'm that guy but instead of you know 
Kevin Bacon backing away and trying to ed- get away from Nick Hornby, he sat down with me in, in a New York, you know, uh, restaurant and, and, and talked to me for hours about it. So I, I just felt it was an incredible, it was just an incredible joy. And, and you had a moment in a diner, I believe, was it with Riser or was it with yeah, Daniel with Stern? Riser. I had my diner moment. Yeah. What was the diner moment with Riser? It, it was over a black and white cookie. Where, where essentially he, he, we're sitting across a table at each other, and, and essentially he's like, "Oh, I left this this cookie for you. You gonna have it?" I was like, "Well, no. I, I thought you were gonna have it." And 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 then he said, "Well, if you're not gonna take it, I'm gonna take." It. And, and essentially, bef- like in the middle of it, I realized that I was not only just reporting on diner, but I was actually having a diner moment with with the guy who essentially invented uh, uh, more than anybody else, uh, Paul Reiser, that entire sort of talking about nothing. And uh, again, it was <laughs> stupidly thrilling. The story is called Much Ado About Nothing, published in Vanity Fair uh, in March of 2012. And we'll link to it. Uh, check it out. It's a great read. Um, your favorite athlete to cover, Scott, who is that? I mean, you know, in, in many ways, I, I would say Jordan. Um, in some ways, I would say Pete Sampras. Uh, and Andre Agassi, just because um, it was sort of thrilling to to be at Ground Zero for that rivalry. Um, you know, weirdly enough, I mean, one of the greatest thrills I ever had was watching was 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 I, I didn't cover him, but I mean, I covered the game, but was watching Diego Maradona uh, warm up was was one of the biggest thrills I've ever seen. He he was balancing the ball all over his his body in ways I had never seen. Shoulder, back of his leg, you know. And this was before a game, uh, in during that World Cup, and I I still can't get over what he was able to do with the ball. So I mean that that was an incredible thrill as well. Um, Julius Irving. Mm-hmm. Um, why why Doctor J? You know he was just. Um, oh, first of all, he was a he was a childhood idol. So, so being able to write a basketball story, a story about him, a feature about him, which which, which I did poorly, um, he he had the ability to sort of take over a story because he spoke in perfect paragraphs, and you you were, and 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 certainly as a young journalist, not really knowing what I was doing, um, you know, getting great quotes was the big deal at that time, uh, and uh, and he filled up your notebook. So, so in a way, he he was in complete control of the story, and I didn't realize what I was doing, but but it was in, incredibly. Yeah, so you were, just a, you were just a stenographer at that point. Yeah, a, yeah. a, a, a wide-eyed stenographer. Oh. Yeah, it was a bad, it was a bad story. I mean, it really was, but 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 still a thrill thrill to do and a, and a thrill to cover. I mean, who was the who was the worst guy that you you had to deal with? Maybe you don't want to answer it, but I mean, who who was just somebody that just you came away from the experience with him or her and said that was bad person. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of them were, uh, many of them were baseball players. I mean, there was one time where I was, you know, in uh, the, the the Marlins were in the World Series, 1997. Kevin Brown. Uh, oh, yeah. This is the, yep. this is the, day bef- the day before game one. And it's, you know, people are arriving in town. And, and Kevin Brown, uh, the, the pitcher for the Marlins, was stock, you know, the journalists have sort of descended upon the clubhouse. And. I'm sorry, but if you can't be happy that you're in the World Series and can't understand that, you know, <laughs> that that it's a special occasion, Kevin Brown was walking through just snarling and and ripping and and uh, and swearing at everybody. It was just, I mean, it was. I, frankly, I kind of felt sorry for him. Tell you the truth, I kind of like if really you you can't see how 
how great this is to be here. Um, and, and I found it often with baseball players more, more than any other sport. And why, and why is that? What is it about baseball players? I mean, my, it's a very strange thing because, because um, uh, there's a, there was a great hostility. Again, I, this, may, this may have changed, but this is, when, this is in the 80s. The baseball players were uh, – it, it's, a, it's a weird thing because essentially hockey players, Canadian hockey players specifically, are considered some of the nicest, most open uh, – and 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 friendly and accommodating athletes. Everybody says that still. And 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 you've and you've said that Scott about tennis as well. You say tennis yeah. players. You know, it's like they, they, you've got complete access often, and um and and it's it, it's it's not that hard. Yeah. No, but 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 the interesting thing about about I mean, here you have canadian hockey players and baseball players american baseball players they're both the national sport of their team they're both high school uh, groups essentially of high school graduates sent off to the netherlands of, of of their countries to you know in the minor leagues or whatever to to apply their craft and learn and and so you'd think they'd be similar but but for whatever reason i found baseball players to be really uh, hostile um arrogant in many ways, um, they think they're the national pastime, and so they 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 had a great disdain for for a lot of the press. Again, there were exceptions. Tony Gwynn is one of the, like the greatest human beings ever, uh, you know. But but overall, there was this weird attitude about the press, and and um, you know, I, I I can still remember my first my first day of uh, in 1984. A, a, a player came. I, I walked into a, a visiting clubhouse, and and. A female reporter came running out, and a, and a, uh, she was an intern and and uh, sent on the road, and and uh, the player was following her with his uh, hand on his crotch, saying how much uh, you know she you know, it was just harassing her, and it was just disgusting. Um, and so I I found that to be you know horrific, and and again there there were good moments as well, but but overall I found baseball players um, to be the most difficult. So in 2003, um, the fall 2003 into 2004, Scott and I had um, sort of, it's, it's, it's interesting, the timing just worked out that we were both on sort of great boondoggles, maybe the last great the boondoggle, last boondoggle, maybe the yeah. last boondoggle in, in, in journalism. I was in London for the Times. I spent two and a half years there covering counterterrorism issues out of London, traveling around Europe and the Middle East. Scott was in the south of France. Uh, sent there by SI editor Terry McDonnell, um, an incredible, almost preposterous gift was yeah. given to you to use the south of France as your uh, launching pad to basically travel around the world and, and write about sports. And, you know, you went to Pakistan and wrote about cricket. You, 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 glo- you globetrotted and wrote incredible stories for SI. And and also, it was the basis for your second book um, called Far Afield, A Sports Writing Odyssey, which is part um, a story that's... The, the book is in part about covering sports around the world, but it's also a part memoir, part confessional, really, uh, and, and a great book and um, highly recommend it. Um and you and I, a couple times, you know, I was with you, you know, Scott's house was among these olive trees um, in this little town. And it just, it was just ridiculous. We're sitting there sipping wine and thinking, you know, it's never going to get better than this. And it probably hasn't and won't. Um, 
how did that happen? How did Terry McDonald agree to let you do that? Um, and what's your favorite piece that you did um, when you were based in the south of France? Well, uh, I had gotten a, a, a I, I had spoken to you earlier about how you know I never really was a, a full sports columnist at the Miami Herald, or and 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 kind of was pulled in three or four different directions while doing that. Um, and when I was at Sports Illustrated, uh, my old boss in Sacramento, Dan McGrath, one of the great sports editors, period, and great people in this business, um, was at the Chicago Tribune. And he called me and said, uh, uh, asked me if I'd be interested in being a sports columnist there. So, you know, a lot of things happened and suddenly I got a job offer and, and it was, you know, an incredible sports town, great paper, uh, you know, in a completely pure um, sports columnist job, and and um, the lead sports column at the Chicago Tribune, and and I felt well, if this is if you wanted to get back to newspapers, if this is if this is what you want to do, you know, and and if you want to see if you were that kind of guy to, to write a column, this is the time to do it to to go back to a big city newspaper with a with a you know essentially with an angel looking over your shoulder hiring you. Um, it's a great, it's a great gig. Great gig. You, you got to think about it. Yeah. And and I was completely happy at SI. Like it was one of the only the few things that I would ever leave SI to think about, especially since Dan was there. So uh, I thought about it and, and Terry made it clear that he didn't want me to leave. And he said, well, you got to come up here. Uh, you got to come, come up and talk to everybody. And um uh, I was like, well, Terry, I've got a story on deadline. Uh, this week. Said, no, no, you got to come up here now. We'll, we'll just delay the story. <laughs> so I went up, and and the day before, I realized, wait, he, they're going to ask me what I want. You know, they're going to say, well, you know, and you know that doesn't happen very often. And and there was nothing that I did want. They were uh, they treated me great. So I, um, so uh, I thought, well, the only, the only sort of position in, in newspapers that I really sort of coveted. I mean, Chris Clary and, and, and Ian Thompson, both were sort of the sports columnists of the International Herald Tribune and did, do, did wonderful work. And it was just this incredible gig, you know, being based in Europe for the International Herald Tribune, writing these incredible pieces. Um, so I said to Terry McDonald, um, uh, uh, when he asked me, when I got up there, he said, well, what do you want? I said, well, how about if I do this? Why don't I go to live in Europe and, and write sports? And then uh, he said, okay. And I kind of like, are you kidding me? Like, I couldn't believe he said yes. I mean, and so it, it was sort of an open-ended thing, but I realized that, you know, the best time to do it was before the Athens Games, uh, Athens Olympics, because uh, because of terrorism and the fact that the Olympics were going back to their their spiritual home uh it just seemed like a really appropriate time to be there um and we just <laughs> picked south of france because my wife spoke french and i realized i was going to be traveling a lot she should she should get something out of this as well and she always wanted to live in france so. right right you also picked the south of france because it's the, it's south, the south of, of france, france. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah no no of, of course yeah. but i mean but we were also thinking about italy we were thinking about other maybe yeah, even greece you you could, yeah you could have chosen could, any place in could europe have chosen right? could, anywhere could, could spain you know. madrid yeah. yeah yeah so so it just but but i figured and we figured you know she's she's has to deal with this too probably more so than i do uh you know the nuts and bolts of it so uh, uh anyway so that's how we ended up there, which again, it was the south of France, and for a kid who who grew up with really no no money and no, I didn't get on a plane till I was, you know, sophomore year of high school for the first time, and um, you know, and, and left the country 
almost, you know, not certainly not until I graduated college. Um, it was unbelievable. It was it was literally like a dream. And again, that doesn't mean that like I mean, it, you know, it sounds you know, we as you describe it, you're drinking wine and everything else, and of course you're never going to complain about it. But it is life at a greater degree of difficulty. You still got to go to the DMV. You got it's you're not <laughs> staying at a hotel and getting room service. You you right. have to live there. So so there are challenges that are that are fascinating but irritating at the time. Um, yeah, but, but overall, no, but, yeah, but nobody wants to hear a complaint. Nobody about wants to hear. Anything. Yeah, yeah. No, so, right. and it was great. Yeah. It, there's, I, I don't have a complaint at all. It's just, it's just you don't expect that. You think it's the dream, but once you get there, there's a reality. But it is, it was, it was absurd. And as you said, I don't know that anybody. I mean, I, I think Sam Borden of of the Times. He might have done it for ESPN. I don't know, but but you know, has had that gig or but but he overall, had, he had that gig. He was the European sports correspondent for the Times before we hired him at ESPN. So so Sam did have a similar gig. And and by the way, listeners, I think we're going to have Sam on this podcast at some point in 2018 as well. Um, but what was your favorite piece that you did when you were over there? Well, my favorite piece was probably. Um, Pakistan India cricket yeah, because that's because um, that's mine. If you weren't going to say that, that's the piece I was going to say. And, and I don't and I don't think it was very. I don't think it's a great piece. You know, overall, I think. Uh, but but the challenge of doing it, I mean, it was the ultimate parachute job because not only did I have to, I don't know, I didn't know anything about cricket. Um, I didn't know anything about Pakistan and India, and I suddenly had to become not just because this is the first time India was touring pa- Pakistan. Um, in 14 years and and you know this is these are two countries that are nuclear nuclear tipped powers of uh, you know they right. and they, they've gone to war three times previous and many times the cricket matches between them ended in bloodshed so um and people were expecting that to happen for this one for this tour and um so i had to become an instant expert uh, on international, you know, Pakistan-India relations going back to 1947 and the partition and, and uh, you know, uh, the three wars that they fought and then the, the complications of, and of, of cricket and trying to tell that to an American audience. I, I, I don't, I'm not overjoyed with the piece. I think, I think it's kind of flat in many ways, um, but the experience of it and the challenge of it were unbelievable and, and, and being there, being in that world, um, again, was it was like I, I can't believe someone's paying me to do this because it's just it's just astonishing to be here, and being and having the opportunity uh, to even tell the story is is an incredible gift. And uh, you know, I've I've been inordinately lucky uh, over and over again, and 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 blessed with great bosses who were trusted me enough to to at least send me off into the into oblivion to try and figure it out. That's the secret. The, the, the secret of having fun, and, and, and it really comes down to that. I mean, the, the reason why you become a writer or become a journalist is because it's fun. It's more fun than you'll have doing just about anything else. I mean, I can see the envy in the eyes of my friends who are attorneys and even doctors when they say, what are you working on? What are you doing? It, it's, it's fun. It's just, it's fun. And the secret of it is to have editors uh, and bosses who believe in you, who trust you, who have your back, and let you do, let you follow, um, you, you know your just your whims and your and and allow you the great privilege that that, that you had to be in the south of France uh, and to travel around the world and and write about sports in all these far flung places. Um, you turned far afield, Scott. Um, 
interestingly, not just into sort of a story about that year, but also a memoir about covering, you know, Michael Jordan, writing about Ted Williams and Lance Armstrong and, and a lot of the work you did prior to going there. Um, so it's this great mix of, and I, of, of, of being a journalist um, abroad, but, but also what it takes to get there. And so any young uh, writer out there listening, I would highly recommend, strongly urge you to find a copy and read it if you haven't already done so. It's really terrific. It'll cost you 50 cents, I think, at this point. You, you, you'll find it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, on Amazon. <laughs> Amazon yeah. or, 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 some, or some table on, uh, in, in Manhattan somewhere. That's what I tell people. I, you can get yeah. first off the tee, I think, for a penny uh, yeah. on Amazon. So uh, it's, it's a bargain. Um, all right, we got one final question, uh, and I appreciate all the time. Your proudest moment as a writer. What, what, what is the, just the moment that quickly comes to mind that you were most proud of, of what you were doing or what you had written or what you had seen or what, what you had shared with readers? I mean, the first, I, I, I will, I mean, the first one that comes to mind and it, it might be different tomorrow, but is, uh, my Max Lennox piece probably. Uh, I mean, this was a story that, um, uh, about the uh, a point guard at, at Army um, named Max Lennox, who um, for I, I had known about for about he he had been a high school player at, at at in Fairfax, Virginia, near where I live, and and it came to me because um, um, the guy building my shelves, uh, uh, his daughter went to school with Max Lennox, and he said, you know, there's this there's this kid who's an incredible basketball player, and um, he's got two white fathers. And, uh, and he's a black kid. And I thought, well, I don't know what the story is, but that's a story. Uh, and I sort of kept tabs on Max for a while. And, and uh, then when uh, then I sort of, after a couple of years, I checked back in and, and realized that he'd, he'd just, he was going to Army. And um, I contacted the family. Um, they weren't ready to do the story yet. Um, and so I just kept in touch with him year after year, checked in every once in a while. And then finally, as a senior, uh, Max wanted to tell his story at last. Um, and, you know, he, he was born a, a crack baby um, in Philadelphia. Uh, and, and he was adopted by uh, two white gay men. He's a black kid from Philadelphia, two white gay men from North Carolina. And in the midst of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, and the controversy over that, uh, he enrolled and became the point guard at, at Army. And I just thought, um, talk about culture and sports mixing, um, gay marriage, uh, gays in the military, the myth of the crack baby, um, black-white relations. I mean, you can go every which way. And the family was so incredible. And um, the, the fact that SI never pressured me hey you got to tell the story now whatever that not at all it's like uh, and and if i wasn't going to do it and i certainly wasn't going to do it without the cooperation of the family um they were fine with that and they were patient they weren't uh, it took five six years for it to come together um and um you know he's a minor character in many ways um you know obviously he's not you know michael jordan or um you know, or, or uh, Joe Montana. Um, but um, I just think that I, I, I just feel good that I was able to write that story um, and tell that story. I feel like it's important in a, in a subtle way. And, and I, 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 I'm happy about that. 
It's an awesome story. Uh, Really, really terrific. And the fact that it's a story that you chased for five or six years too is kind of remarkable. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a piece that you just kept, uh, gathering string on and, uh, waiting for the right moment. And, yeah, and, 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 and the fact the editors had the patience, um, you know, and, and the trust in you to, to work at that that long is and not only that but but to understand that it was like they never wavered in knowing it was a good story they right. didn't say well you know he's you know uh they, you know we've uh, over time sometimes stories lose their appeal yeah uh they never they never did and they trusted me that i i how much i was motivated about it um to 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 go ahead and do it i i, I just yeah I'm, I'm i'm proud of that story well, Scott, thank you so much for making the time. I've really uh, enjoyed our chat. Uh, your friendship means the world to me, and uh, you've been you've been a, a, a great inspiration in my life um, as as a writer and and as a man, as, as somebody who I just look up to, and your guidance uh, on many many things, professional and personal, too, have uh, have meant the world to me. So so thanks for doing this. Well, right back at you. It's a it's a it's a two way street. So so everything you said, I I mean doubly the other way. So thank you and thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here. Thanks, Scott. Our guest today, S. L. Price, senior writer at Sports Illustrated since 1994, author of four books, legend in our business. Um, thanks again, Scott, for uh, guest editing the Sunday Long Read and for being our first guest of 2018. This has been the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. Thanks for making time for us. We'll be back again soon with another episode. See you soon. Mm-hmm.